What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? Close observers, who through words and images, strive to capture the details in fiction, history, art, and song. These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. Welcome to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and my guest today is Gibson Faye LeBlanc, Executive Director of the Maine Publishers and Writers Alliance. Gibson is also a poet, fiction writer, and teacher. His first collection of poems, Death of a Ventriloquist, received the Vassar Miller Prize and was published in 2012. Other work has appeared in magazines, including Guernica, The New Republic, and Tin House, Jubilat, Feel, and The Literary Review. His fiction has appeared in Slice and Portland Magazine. His second book of poems, Deke Dangle Dive, was published by Caravan Carey Press in 2021. With graduate degrees from UC Berkeley and Columbia University, he has taught writing at conferences, schools, and universities, including Fordham, Haystack, and the University of Southern Maine, and helped lead community arts organizations, including The Telling Room, Space Gallery, and Hewn Oaks Artist Colony in Maine. Gibson, welcome. Thank you. We usually start these interviews on a personal note. Uh, I'd like to know who you are. Uh, we haven't met face-to-face, um, but where'd you come from and how'd you get here? What's the, what's the personal story? And when you first got here, what'd you find? Thanks for asking, Peter, and thanks for having me. I actually grew up in Chicago. You know, it was a great place to grow up, but I had the great uh, good fortune of meeting my future wife um, in our first semester of our first year of college at Holy Cross, College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Mass. And um, we met at 18 and um, many, many years later, she grew up here in Portland, which is where I am now, and lived in many different parts of the country and eventually made our way back to Maine with, uh, at that time, um, our, my oldest son in tow. And, uh, yeah, honestly, when we, when we came here, uh, I love Maine. I've been coming here since I was 18 for, as a visitor, it's just an, an amazing place for so many reasons. So your, your wife led you here. Uh, she had family roots here. You had visited here and you were a typical peripatetic youth. Uh, weren't we all you know, wandering around the country and the world, uh, looking for something we didn't find. And so we came home again. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you find out that you were a poet? I, um, I, I backed into being a poet. <laughs> I, I always admire the people who knew. Actually, I listened to the episode where you talked with Julia Bausma, who I know, and I love her work. Um, and she talked about knowing when, from very young that she poetry. It was either poetry or being a pirate, I believe. And for me, uh, it was the opposite. I I had no no idea that poetry was a thing, no idea that it might be a thing for me. I grew up playing sports. I was in, into the math and si- math and science. I went to undergrad thinking I was going to be a doctor. I, I was pre med. I studied all the sciences. I did all the things. I was good at science. And then in my last semester of my undergrad career. I had a space in my schedule and I happened to take a poetry class with a poet named Christopher Merrill, who now runs the University of the International Writing Program at University of Iowa. 
And it was like Emily Dickinson says, you know, I know when I'm in the presence of the poem, I feel as if the top of my head has been taken off. That's what it felt like. I, I never understood that one could be that passionate, that interested in what they were, in what you were studying. So I literally, my life took a kind of a, a left turn right there. And um, I soon dropped pre-med, even though I was a credit short of finishing my degree with that. And um, eventually my parents got over that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was the beginning. I, I then started, uh, so I graduated and then I, I really started reading and writing on my own and, and eventually teaching and editing and doing other things kind of related to the written word. When we moved back to Maine, I had just finished graduate school in New York City. We had a one-year-old son. And um, I thought, you know, I love Maine and I was happy to move back. We have family here. And I thought, oh, this will be great. I might, I don't know what the job prospects will be. I might have to just, I might, I might, maybe I'll go back to teaching high school, which is something I had done before, or, you know, who knows what else. And I had worked in nonprofits and I just happened to connect with the three writers who were just, had just started, just founded The Telling Room. And I landed with them and they needed somebody to run, run things and kind of take the ball and run with it. And I was happy to do that. Well, let's, let's go there in a minute. Um, I love the idea that, that you backed into a poetry class and that basically your, your teacher, Christopher Merrill, uh, did he know that he was actually serving as your psychotherapist at the time, or did you? <laughs> no, I don't think he did. And I, you know, he probably didn't intend to, you know, turn a, a soon-to-be med student into a poet. But that's what happened. So, you know. And how did you fare in that class? I, I'm a product of writing school myself, University of Iowa, and all the rest. I used, I found it one of the most um, exhilarating and simultaneously damaging experiences mm. uh, ever. Because it was so competitive, yeah, and uh, and the talent level was was so high. That's a really good question. You know, I think I was lucky in a bunch of ways. One was that I was pretty ignorant, <laughs> um, so I just I I loved the, what we were doing. And Chris Christopher um, was a wonderful teacher, and he had us memorizing poems every week and writing poems every week. And he was really one of his skills as a teacher, which is something that I really appreciate later when I taught myself, is that he could pick out the, you know, out of the thing that you wrote that was probably, let's be honest, pretty terrible, right? <laughs> Most undergrads don't write great poems. Um, and I was not any different. I was not writing anything worth saving, really. But he would pick out the one thing in there that was worth something that was maybe a seed and he would kind of say like okay now you just need to make it all like that <laughs> you know and um yeah. he was also good at not it wasn't a, a competitive environment it was very much an environment in which you felt free to make mistakes and try things out and just just do go you know when i was in the early days of the telling room we used to always say that our favorite prompt with young writers was just go, go, go. It was just all encouragement, you know, just just do it because that's how you get better. Well, you've grown into a published poet. 
Let's put you on the spot. Will you read something for us? Sure. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about what might be related to our conversation, which I think we're going to talk about MWPA and some writing world things in Maine. So in my most recent book, Deep Dangle Dive, there's a bunch of threads of different things happening in the book. One of the threads is there are a number of poems where I'm kind of having it out with poetry and with writing. I think um, all writers go through, you know, periods where they're just doubting, why do we do it? Who, why does it matter? Who cares? And at the time of, of writing a lot of those poems that are in this book, my, my brother was also um, in a protracted battle with cancer, which, which ultimately is what he died from a couple of years ago. So anyways, there was, there was reason to doubt sort of the project of poetry. And, and that's all a long preamble to say, um, this is a poem uh, about about that, and it also looks back on my days as a as an undergrad. The title of the poem references. Uh, there's a famous line by Auden. He says, "For poetry makes nothing happen," and and lots of people love to quote that. There's a whole rest of the of the quote that sort of gives the context for it. Anyways, this poem plays with that, so it's called "Making Nothing." bright wings. At 21, there lived no evidence that I should write, no gift, no one asking me to give the dearest deep down things, or myself permission to skip a lab and admit that medical school was someone else's dream. I then, now, did not need to have, hold, keep, except that I knew a girl, except that college let me escape a family in pieces, like almost every plate, bowl, or dish I'd held. Except that I needed evidence that I felt things, that I had a life inside my life. And, and, dear misspent youth, dear unshotted days, I needed sound flicking in the tinder and springing forth from tips of grass and memories with teeth. And there was so much rain in Worcester that I was bare, muddy, bent double because I, I, from a long line of fakers, found a place I couldn't. I knew those terrible words would lead me on, on. Wow. A long line of fakers. Yeah, aren't we all? You know, um, that that segues into the telling room, actually. Um, when I first came to Portland, uh, I heard about that place and I went down. I might have talked to you, actually. Uh, it was a brief conversation. But I, I was so impressed by it because, you know, we talk about becoming writers. Uh, same thing was true with painters and artists. You know, and and so we end up thinking the only way you can do that is to go go to school, and in fact, something like the Telling Room, which is geared for younger children, particularly and maybe enrolled in schools where the arts and literary endeavors are not particularly well advanced, um, it gives somebody an opportunity to essentially understand that idea of faking. Mm. I mean, there's so much pressure on young people to be something that they aren't. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that poetry allows you to put all that into perspective 
um, juggle it around a little bit, take all the things that you know are fraudulent and throw them away, and sort of boil yourself down to an essence, to an essential person, if it's possible, but to do it into age 13, 14, 15, um, right in the middle of adolescence is really an amazing phenomenon, I think. Yeah, absolutely. It was one of the most gratifying parts of, of working at the telling room and, and helping to kind of create it as we as we make it up as we went but i mean i just you know it was i and many of us who worked there uh over the years you know we often said you know we want to have this make this place the thing that we wish we had had at that age right and i was at that time i was in catholic school there was no creative anything you know in chicago there was i got a very good education but there was no creative writing, there was no poetry writing, there was none, none of that. There was very little artistic expression at all. So to be able to to have this place outside of school where that can happen and, and be fostered um, is a wonderful thing. So let's talk about the main Publishers and Writers Alliance. Did that exist when you were at the Telling Room or did it come after? How did you, how did, who founded it and and why? Yeah, um, MWPA is a, is a old organization relatively as, as these things go. It was actually founded way back in 1975. So it's coming up on, uh, I think, what, 47 years this summer. So it was founded by a group of writers and publishers in the 70s who wanted to band together, you know, as simple as that. A lot of these were by publishers, I mean, you know, and I've, I've had the good fortune to meet some of these people who are who are the founders. Some of them are still around here in Maine. Uh, they had, you know, letterpress printers in their barns and, and they were doing pamphlets and they were doing readings and they needed a way to gather together to learn from each other, but also to pool resources and to just sort of, you know, compare notes. And, you know, the honest or uh, one way of looking at it is that we are still that. We are just a bunch of uh, writers and an organization that supports writers banding together. And um, that is really still the purpose. The focus is on craft, community, and culture. It has, as, as with any organization that's been around that long, there's been lots of ups and downs and changes over the years. But it's an organization that over the last 12, 10 to 12 years has really been growing and thriving. So it's been um, a, a gratifying place to, 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 to work and do different kinds of work for myself too. So what interests me there, of course, is this letterpress group there. I mean, I, Iowa city, for example, is filled with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, and how many letterpresses, um, and little pamphlets in, in, in Caslon old style, can you possibly produce? And there was a certain pride in independence and being apart from publishing per se. This was something that was pure and it was shared, it was expensive. And, uh, you know, in its odd way, given the politics of the people who were doing it, uh, a bit elitist, in, in fact. Um, and so the change from being an organization of, of, of people who are sharing letterpress interests and looking at publishing that way to people who are now actually making books mm -hmm. And even more importantly, distributing books, mm -hmm. and then even more importantly than distributing books, selling books, mm -hmm. and then even more importantly than selling books is allowing the writers to make a living so they can keep on writing. Mm -hmm. How did that happen? I mean, uh, who was there a was there a transitional moment? 
there have been a lot of transitional moments looking back at, at the history of MWPA. You know, for example, there was a there was a sort of heyday in the mid '80s to to yeah mid eighty mid to late '80s where you know um, MWPA produced a catalog a catalog of all the books published in Maine, and you would go on there and you would order it, and they would deliver the books. There was a book warehouse. You know, there was a whole distribution system that MWPA ran and and helped these small presses, you know, sell books and and get them to independent bookstores and all of that stuff. And then what happened, you know, Amazon happened and the yeah, book distribution completely changed. And that that sort of part of MWPA's existence really went away. And um and then I think over time the organization kind of had to reorient itself. And um, that's really what's happened over the last decade or so. And, you know, we focus a lot on how do we support writers and publishers through workshops, conferences, opportunities, both formal and informal, to get together, to learn from each other, to compare notes. So, yeah, that's, I'm happy to talk more about kind of what we do or, or how that works, but, but that's a little bit about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear more. I, I, I was thinking about Amazon. Uh, because you're right, at the moment that Amazon arrived, it, it, the death knell was sounded for every independent bookstore and every young writer that uh, didn't have a, co- a contract or wasn't writing a thriller. Uh, and in fact, uh, that was to be the end of the small press distribution companies uh, and all the rest. And the bookstores couldn't possibly survive. And yet, interestingly, paradoxically, the bookstores are having an explosive growth. Mm-hmm. The independent bookstores in Maine are thriving. Mm-hmm. And ironically, Amazon now has a program where if you want to self-publish, you can use their economy of scale, not only to publish your book, turn it into an ebook, make it available globally, and make a living. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of ironic turn of the wheel there um, that uh, uh, I don't necessarily want to be a full apologist for Amazon, but I do know that um, it's made made books available to a lot of people, while at the same time uh, enabling the bookstores curated by their owners um, as, as places of program and community uh, literary endeavor to thrive. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Yeah, and there's the the whole publishing landscape has changed, right? And in in some ways probably somebody could make an argument for the worse and other people could make an argument for the better. I mean, but, but what we can say is definitely there's a ton more options than there used to be. Right. And there's a lot less, or the gatekeeping has changed, at least say, I don't think there's less gatekeeping, but it's changed where it's happening. You know, you've still got the big, huge publishers and lots of small publishers, but then you've also got all sorts of in-between cooperatives and people publishing their own work completely or, or, kind of working together to publish their own work or, you know, like doing cooperative presses or hybrid presses. Um, so anyways, yeah, there's a, a much wider landscape. And so part of what we do at MWPA is, is also just educate people so that they can figure out what the best place for them in that wide spectrum is, right? Because not everybody's should be or um, will be, you know, trying to be the next Stephen King and, you know, not everybody should self-publish completely, you know, and there's everything in between that. So, 
This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine, broadcast and archived here on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming at WERU.org, and archived as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Gibson Fay LeBlanc, poet and director of the Maine Publishers and Writers Alliance. I just sort of removed the stigma of self-publishing mm-hmm. uh, uh, as well. Um, you know, it, I've, I've done it both ways, as writer and publisher, and as a publisher by by New York House and publisher by uh, by my own press. And I, I found that in some ways there is comparable satisfaction. And in fact, doing it yourself now, you can actually do better uh, by not being a New York publisher mm-hmm. and not having the late agent taking 15 percent uh, and, all, and all the rest of it. So from a craft and sustainability point of view, uh, there's a real reason now to to self or, co- or cooperative publishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about the services that you provide to first to authors? Yeah. MWPA is a, we're you know we're a membership organization. We have about fifteen hundred plus members in every county of, of Maine and and a lot of people outside of Maine too, writers and literary professionals, editors, you name it. And um, we run in a given year eighty to one hundred workshops, conferences, and events around the state and online. Um, we give out the Maine Literary Awards each year. Um, and then we do a whole bunch of other projects and initiatives to, you know, with the, with the overall goal of supporting writing and book culture in, in different ways. One of the things that we're, that's a new initiative that we're really excited about because it's something we've been talking about for years now, especially with the pandemic and, and sort of not knowing what would happen, is we're planning a literary festival, the Maine Lit Fest, which will happen in the fall of 2022. It's, it's happening. And uh, that will, also have a book fair that highlights a lot of small main publishers. So anyways, that's, that's a little bit about what we do. When is it going to be and where? It'll be uh, September 30th through October 8th. And it'll be, it'll start in Waterville and it'll also be in Portland and it'll be also be online. And there'll be a whole series of, of events happening in those places. Yeah. Does the website promote um, main main authors' books directly? Yeah, we have a we have a web we have a part of our website called Find Main Writers, which is just like what it sounds is is a way for for people to see a bunch of the main writers that are out there that have work out in the world in different ways. Yep. Uh, who pays for it? For MWPA? Yeah, we have a mix. So we've our members support us. Our, our programs, many you know, many of our programs, people pay to be a part of it. We also always have scholarships and fellowships for to, to provide access for people that can't afford it. So our membership, our programs, and then we have you know a lot of our initiatives are also funded by foundations and donors. So we're always actively fundraising, like any nonprofit, to to help, especially with those projects that are things that we know are a good idea but we haven't sort of proven it yet. <laughs> 1,500 members um, 
seems like a lot. It is. <laughs> I was shocked. When I, when I first saw your newsletter, I was just amazed. I said, goodness gracious, look at this. All of these stuff going on. And it wasn't just so much that they were the members, but it was the programming. that It just was constant. And each time the newsletter comes out, it seems as if you've invented a whole bunch of new things, or at least been clever enough to write about the old things as if they sound, <laughs> as if they sound new. But the vitality that's in there is is pretty amazing, and it's a tribute to the creative commitment of the people who are who are behind it. Does the state contribute? The state, n- not directly, regularly, but um, you know, we've we have received uh, regular support from the Maine Arts Commission, which is technically a, a in part state run outfit and also funded by the NEA. I may just insert my personal editorial views here. I'm not, we're not going to call them personal views because uh, we don't do that here. But, but uh, the fact is, though, that one could argue already that the creative community is as vital and as important to the economy and the quality of life of the state as the lobster. Uh, you know, so because we have this back to Maine thing going on, people from away, climate refugees, call them what they what you will. And what are they coming here for? They're coming here for quality of life. Well, yes, quality of life can is is depicted in in the harbors and the lovely watercolors of boats at rest, and that's all good. But at the same time, there's this other cultural life. Mm-hmm. And one thing about it, it seems to me, is that it's been so isolated, it's kind of developed its own resiliency. So you have these small, uh, uh, say, concert series. Uh, There's one in Blue Hill, there's one in Rockland, uh, where really fine music can be heard in this state. And the audiences, uh, the quality of the performance is enormous. And the people in the audience are appreciative, but there are not very many of them. And many people I'll say, have you ever looked at this? Oh, no. Well, do you like classical music? Do you like chamber music? My goodness, here's this thing. It's a treasure mm-hmm. and it should be sold out all the time. I don't believe that the Maine's Arts Council has that frame of reference. Yeah. I mean, I think there's no question that we have this huge resource in this in this state that is our artistic and creative community. And I don't think we take... I don't think we as collectively value it to the degree that we should. And I think that a lot of people in that, in the arts communities know that um, and have, are working on, on changing that in some different ways. But I, I agree. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge part of what makes Maine, Maine. And, you know, part of what I found, what I was lucky to, to step into, which I had no idea was here, when back when we when we moved here and I was helping with the telling room and, and getting that off the ground, I just be, I got plugged into an amazing literary community in, in especially southern Maine, but I know it exists in all parts of the state. And um, there's all sorts of pockets of people doing really interesting work. And certainly at MWPA, I get to I get a chance to see that there's there's really cool things happening, and it and it just keeps increasing. And so like when your comment about our newsletter, I mean. In some ways, you know, we're obviously doing a lot ourselves and and trying to activate different things, but we're also just in times holding a mirror up to things that are already happening around the state, which is lots of really interesting work that's interesting both on sort of a local and statewide level and on a national level. Right. I always 
look at the strength of Maine, uh, that what is our greatest weakness is, is that we're small. What's our greatest strength is that we're small. So therefore, we can pivot on a dime. We can innovate. We can we can uh, work from the bottom up. Um, and so something like your festival strikes me as something that, I mean, it's a big state. And Waterville to Portland is just, you know, it's just District 1. Uh, but the word festival in Blue Hill and the community work cultural centers up in Hobbscook County, those places are really viable and, and, and vital. And shouldn't they all be in it together? I mean, it ought to be a, what am I, who do I say? But it seems to me like it's a statewide in, initiative from the beginning. It becomes an inclusive community expression. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, logistics be damned. I, I, I think it, I, I certainly want it to be that. And I, and I know a lot of people who do uh, as well. And um, in part, we figuring out when it would be and where it would be, we wanted to make sure we, for example, I talked to the folks up and up who do the word festival to make sure we're not programming against each other. And also the Belfast poetry festival and other things like that. And I really think that the future, my great hope is that the future for this lit fest is it provides a way to show people like, Hey, maybe, you know, all of October becomes literary festival month and it's happening in, in all different parts of the state. I know there's a lot of interest in lots of different places to do things like this. Right. Uh, that seems to me a perfect Arts Council grant opportunity. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just to speak about it off the top of my head. <laughs> um, do we like each other? Is it really a community? Um, you know, a community of writers, is, is, is that a hornet's nest or is that a... You know, I, is that a... It's a good, it's a really good question, Peter. Um, I think I can answer it in a few different ways. I think the short answer is yes, relatively yes. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who's, who's, for example, I mean, before Maine, I lived in New York City for several years and went to grad school there. And I will say that, you know, New York City is amazing. I love being there. It's the publishing center of, of maybe the world, definitely North America. But there are a lot of sharp elbows and there are a lot of cliques and there are a lot of factions um, who don't like each other and, and, and um, don't get along and things like that. And I definitely had a, got a sense of that. And, um, you know, all in all, I think that Maine writers and, and publishers and writer types, literary people, they do pretty, pretty well get along with each other and support each other. It's far from perfect. And in fact, one of the things that we've been really pushing on over the last few years in MWPA is, you know, oftentimes you'll hear it in our language. This is a really small thing, but we start to talk about writing communities instead of like one writing community. It's not like there's one monolithic writing community, right? There's really lots of pockets of things. And we're in part trying to make connections between, between them and also include people and communities that haven't been included probably in the past, in the past of sort of main literary history, but also even in the past of MWPA as an organization that's been around for a long time. So, you know, there's lots of people who I think have felt that they were not, should not be part of, of MWPA. And we want to change that, you know, quite frankly, and, and show people that we're, we're for everybody and anybody who's 
um, interested in stories and writing and books and, and taking those things out in, into the world. So there are all sorts of ways to not feel included. It means that could be about genre. It could be about kind of people who are writing between different, doesn't know, don't want to know where their work fits. It could be about rural and urban. It could be about uh, people who are black or people of color or from our indigenous communities um, who haven't felt heard or seen. So, you know, one of our efforts is really to do a better job of making people feel welcome and, and like they can participate and be a part of, of these different things that are happening around the state. Uh, how about arts and schools? Are you fostering poetry and fiction writing in the elementary schools and the high schools? That's a good question. MWPA isn't really, is the short answer, not currently. I mean, honestly, we from my background of working with the telling room, that is really what they're doing. And they're obviously based in Portland, but if you look at the number of schools that they're working with in a given year and where they are, they're, they're cutting a wide swath across Southern and Central Maine, at least. They're not really getting, I don't think, farther north than that. So there's, there's a lot more work to do. But it is that, that work in the schools, which is work that I personally love and have done a lot of, is not something that's been on sort of the, it's not happening at MWPA currently. Right. It just seems to me uh, every now and then uh, you stumble into a school that is a perfectly good school. Um, and it's doing the reading and the writing and the arithmetic, and it's building the standards and it's dealing with the all of the social problems and economic problems and, and diversity issues that exist in small towns in Maine or districts that that are are, are not large independent or, or urban high schools. But what sometimes you drive by or sometimes you walk in that school and it radiates. And it's typically one teacher mm-hmm. or two. You know, it's the it's the art teacher, mm-hmm. you know, it's the drama teacher. Um uh, the or the environmental science um, <clears throat> uh, teacher who understands that art is a way to understand nature, mm-hmm. and that part of it strikes me as something that uh, represents kind of a natural alliance with the alliance. Mm-hmm. In, in some cases, many of your members may be doing that uh, work. In fact, but uh, forgive me for pro- projecting ambition upon your <laughs> upon your budget and your and your leaders, but if you're going to build a community, you you need to build it, mm-hmm. and it needs a really proactive vision uh, that would would go out into the world and galvanize those people and uh, give them the strength of of a, a kind of communal programming and and resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you become a kind of advocate, both socially and politically, uh, for for that kind of contribution to the quality of life in the state. Yeah, no, I, I'm I, like I said personally, uh, very interested in that in that work, and and we are a lot of our members are those people, right? I could give you a list actually of people that I that I know in different towns who are teaching and writing, and um, who I know are those people for their students, and a lot of what we do with our other with our programs for adults, there's a parallel process. Like a lot of what we're a relatively small organization, right? We have a staff of five, some of whom are part-time. 
you know, but the reason that we can do what we do is because we're also able to marshal, you know, in a given year, there might be 45 or 50 writers around the state who are working with us, teaching for us at different times, doing their thing. Um, and so it's, it's marshalling that, you know, army of, of creative folks, um, that, um, is how we, how we get done what we get done. The other thing I noticed in the newsletter is the diversity of genre. Uh, you know, you're not you're not just dealing with uh, haughty fiction uh, or the personal memoir, uh, uh, that sort of thing, of which there are many, 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 uh, and many people writing them that don't publish them. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a wonderful thing, by the way. I I think it's fantastic when when people who don't think they're writers are asked by their children. There's a program that I got sent, a software program as a, on my 80th birthday, actually. And it was from um, my daughter-in-law who enjoys my stories. Mm-hmm. Some people say my stories do go on and on, but they love my stories. And so it's a structure on my computer where I get a, a question every two or three weeks. And I can fill it in and I can answer it and I can answer it anecdotally. I can answer it uh, uh, at, at great length with great, with eloquent style, but it, it provides a structure that I found really rewarding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter, oh, write your memoir. No, no, I, I, who cares? And yet this personal reminder and the questions are quite good. I mean, I found that the questions motivate me to remember and to think about things and articulate them and put them in some kind of uh, the the perspective of a, of a wise man, uh, all that. And that kind of thing, uh, it can be nurtured by this kind of professional organization, it, seem, mm-hmm. it seems to me. Yeah. You know, there's this thing, well, it's artists that everybody's a painter, everybody's an artist. Well, my argument is everybody is a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we don't. None of us have a monopoly on that, and we we all grow up telling each other stories all day, all the time, right? That's what we. Yeah. That's how we become humans. I mean, and um, yeah. On that note, we have a program um, that we started that I helped start at MWPA several years ago um, called Community Word, which is which is really a lot of it's an effort toward what you're talking about. It's a these are long term free community workshops aimed at particular groups of people who probably don't see themselves as writers. Because in part, we asked ourselves the question of how do we get to the people who will never walk through the doors of our one of our writing workshops or don't see themselves ever doing that? Because um, that's a step for sure, a big step for a lot of people. Right. And um, so we've done these workshops with all sorts of different groups of people. Um, We've done them with immigrant and refugee and asylee groups in Portland. We've done them with homeless and formerly homeless individuals. We've done them with people who are in recovery. We just did a recent one online with military veterans. You know, and and there's always a writer and there are some volunteers who are leading it and who are, you know, give some ways for people to, who are not writers again, but to, to really get into telling their stories. And then we produce chapbooks at the end of the of the workshop as a way to and usually there's when possible because of covid there's a reading and some celebration of the, of the, of that work because it's 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 a big deal to to tell your story even if it's a small small part of your story and then 
take it out into the world, even if it's in a small, relatively small, on a relatively small stage. Is there a, a community that would include sort of the technology element that we have? I mean, you know, rap, anime, all storytelling, all all about publishing in a way that is releasing bringing the information, the artistic stuff together, distributing it to people. Uh, metafiction. Mm-hmm. I mean, metafiction doesn't need a book. <laughs> so you sit there and you say to yourself, well, you know, here's a whole nother innovation. And to the to the old folk, it might might, might not be that interesting. But to the young folk, uh, it would be absolutely uh, astonishingly sympathetic to, to their way of telling stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, that's a whole nother program. I don't know if that happens in the telling room uh, or not, but. A li- I mean, I think a little bit for us and a little bit for the telling room, you know, have we pushed out toward, toward some of those things through audio and video uh, storytelling. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly interested. I mean, we've also talked about wanting to do more in the graphic novel space. We have a better understanding these days. There's less boundaries I think between all these different things than there used to be, right? Between all these different ways of telling stories, which I welcome. And I think let's go where the interest and the people are and let's help, you know, improve their craft at telling those stories in whatever medium or in whatever way they're trying to do it. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with artists and authors who invoke the spirit of Maine broadcast and archived here on WERU 89.9 FM, streaming at WERU.org, and archived as podcast at pointedfurs.org. I'm speaking today with Gibson Faye LeBlanc, poet and director of the Maine Publishers and Writers Alliance. Well, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm offering too much free advice, but as I watched and read the newsletter and sort of began to explore what you actually were doing, it struck me that here at last was the, a focus on a group of people who actually speak for the arts mm-hmm. uh, in a way where there is no, I don't believe that voice exists in Maine. I mean, if you, the Arts Commission is terrific. It gives a few fellowships. It does sort of grants for here and there. Uh, the budget is pathetic. It should be 10 times uh, what it is. If you're really trying to see see the arts as a, as a contribution to a, to the growing economy of the state, um, it, the, the amount that is, is budgeted is a pittance. Uh, and so that the idea that there's this association, an alliance, not an association, an alliance that welcomes everyone in, but has this vision and, and knows how to arrange the words and make the arguments and sing the songs and tell the story. So it's heard from the legislature um, to, the, to the foundation directors to the bookstore sellers, to the children in the schools. I mean, we have the possibility of essentially building part of the image or the, the of the state of Maine as an arts community, as a place of creative spirit. I love that vision, Peter. I think let's 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 make it happen. You know, I think that that's that's um, you know, and I I am sure you know this. That's the the story of, of, of Maine, I mean, is also the story of all across the United States, right? We don't do a good job of valuing the arts as a country, as a culture, you know, in comparison, if we look at other, other countries around the world and what they just, just on what they spend on, on arts, supporting arts related things versus other things. It's, it's, 
it's pretty shocking how, how poorly we do with that. But, you know, that's um, something for, for organizations like MWPA to, to push on both in an advocacy sense and in a sense of like, let's just make it happen however we yeah, can. Let's yeah. just find the money wherever and however we can and make however much of it we can make happen happen. I will say too, there is an effort in the last couple of years to, um, there's a group called the, the Cultural Alliance of Maine, which is a, a new thing, which is an effort to, to, to have cultural organizations and arts organizations in Maine get together and do a better job of, of advocating for ourselves and at having a seat at the table. You know, there should be a state level arts person in Maine and in every state in the country, right? There should be a cabinet level arts person, you know, sitting in the cabinet with the president. Those are things that um, happen in other places, could happen here. So, you know, and they, and they would make a difference. Yeah, you can call out the candidates, not just on their position on this controversy or that controversy, but what's your position on the arts <laughs> and what do you intend to do for it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that would be an interesting question to ask. In November, retirees, whole nother community mm -hmm. there, I would suspect, uh, like my storytelling app, you know, uh, what do we do with ourselves? We're constantly remembering. Uh, and and that memory is also part of the, of the state's sort of constitution, mm -hmm. in a way, part of our intellectual history. Every, the collective memory of everyone who's ever lived here and made some kind of contribution is something that, that forms us. And the more we know about it, the deeper we go in it, the better we are prepared to protect it in the future. That's why when I, I came across the Alliance, I said to myself, well, this is a lovely thing. This is, a, uh, this is the beginning of something grand. And uh, I was very excited to have you be willing to come and talk to us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. And I was just going to add that we, yeah, we have a lot of retirees among our membership, certainly, and a lot of people yeah. who've turned to really have a, have an impulse to get their stories down and to get them out there, and whether it's just with family or small groups or, or more widely. And that's uh, a wonderful thing. Yeah. We're going to run out of time. One question Having talked about all these possibilities, what is the possible? What is what do you see the alliance being over the next say five years? Mm. Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I mean I think this this Litfest is a big endeavor that we're taking on, and and we have the plan is to make it a yearly thing and to keep growing it. And I think there's a lot of potential there. Particularly, it's exciting for us because it's it reaches beyond the usual. Don't get me wrong when I say usual. I love our usual suspects, the usual literary community, the book people, the people who know their book people and writing people. But also, like, how do we reach beyond that? How do we start to pull in people who, who don't know or, you know, haven't, haven't experienced to the same degree how exciting it can be to, to hear stories in that way, to, to get activated by a story, to connect it to your own experience? So anyways, something like a LitFest is, is maybe more democratic way to pull in a whole group of people. And our hope is that we can, can do that. Right. Good. Uh, would you read us another poem? Sure. 
Do you have a poem that sort of sums up uh, the conversation that you thought we were going to have <laughs> from the point of view <laughs> and didn't rise to your expectation? <laughs> I love the conversation. Um, I don't know if the poem I have does justice to it or not, but, um, you know, I, I did bring like the, the poem I read earlier. This is, this is another poem that, that tries to get at sort of the heart of why do writers do this? Why does any writer do this? Why does this particular writer do this? And um, it actually, the poem starts with a, it starts with a stolen line, which is, I think, a way that we pay homage to other writers who've come before us. And in this case, uh, the borrowed line is from the main poet, Wes McNair, who I'm sure many of the listeners know. He has a, a poem in which he refers to a poem as a small handheld device. And uh, I thought that that was a, a wonderful thing to think about the idea that this poem is a, that any poem is a small handheld, the original small handheld device, you could say. So this is a poem that, that riffs on that, that line. It begins with it. It's called the latest in nanotechnology. This small handheld device perhaps crafted by microbes or robots the size of dust mites who crawl with hammers thinner than hairs and liars made of air into the ears of anyone who reads this, like you, in order to make a delicious, somber, jubilant, nighttime trash can pebble-thrown opera that unfolds across a screen the size of your eyes the size of a sky just turned to blue dark and now rising in windows, the dark shapes of trees. So all the little birds tune their giant songs and you too contain a song bigger than your body. Well, no and yes, this is the newest technology, meaning ancient, an app with a code from the time of magic which is a word we used when we couldn't understand how a thing leapt from a page like this one into your ears, into your throat. The words so old, they're new and known and felt, green between fingertips, heat in the heart. And no, this paper will not sink with seawater. It is not compatible with certain chemicals or every tongue. It will not reforest vast tracts. It does not matter to anyone who doesn't enter this small and giant door, an entryway created to give permission to see this ball of fire above the small, mistaken human endeavors now cranking. Begin again. Perfect. It's just perfect. I mean, here we are. Uh, using the technology, I'm looking at a screen, I'm looking at little graphs of my voice and your voice, little oscillations scrolling across the screen. Um, and this interview can be recorded in such a way and presented in such a way that anywhere, anytime, with no barrier to entry, that poem can be read mm -hmm. and that poem can be heard and that poem can be understood and felt. It's wonderful. You know, in the in the development business, they say that you never leave a confrontation or a conversation without an ask. Mm -hmm. 
what would you ask? Mm-hmm. What would you ask for from the people that are sitting around us in the in the forest and thinking about this? Mm-hmm. What could we do mm-hmm. to help you? Uh, what's do you have a specific thing that you'd like to ask? For? Mm-hmm. It's a great question, Peter. I, I yeah, sure. <laughs> I have a specific thing I could ask for. There's I've got two ways to answer this question. One is I think everybody out there could go and buy a new book <laughs> by a main writer and or share a book that they love by a main writer with somebody else who hasn't read it before and say, you need to read this, put it in their hands and say, this is for you. Because that's how, you know, that is still, even after so many years of selling books and, and the book book culture in this country and in this state, we still, the beauty of it is that we never understand when a book is just going to catch like wildfire, right? And people are going to hand it around and it's going to just become this giant thing, right? Because that just, it just sort of happens sometimes. And that's how it starts is people handing each other books. And then the second ask would be to just, uh, you know, as a, as a leader of a nonprofit, I would be remiss if I didn't say, you know, check us out, mainwriters.org. Come check out a workshop, stop by an event, support main writers. You could support a fellowship for a main writer who can't afford to take a workshop themselves. Those are all ways that we can nurture this great resource we have, which is this great writing community in Maine. What has always guided me in the in the fundraising world is the phrase "money follows magic," mm. and you can plan your development plan and all the rest of it, and it means nothing and won't be successful if it's not built on magic. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have here. You have a whole community of magicians, mm. and they collectively can create this kind of spirit where people won't hesitate for a minute to provide the kind of support or, mm-hmm. or go buy the book or give the book or double down on the number of book groups that are out in the in the community, uh, even listening to do- conversations from the point at first, mm. because it's now become a, uh, a collective of interviews of people, all of whom will live in Maine most of whom are writing about Maine uh, and providing those those kinds of insights to us using modern technology. Yeah, absolutely. It's been wonderful, Gibson. I've enjoyed it thoroughly. I really want to thank you for uh, stepping up. I appreciate that very much. And uh, go to the website uh, and uh, um, buy a, from a Maine bookseller yeah. and give it to a Maine neighbor. Yeah. And we'll create a kind of complex of, uh, of, of exchange of good ideas and personal observations and, and spirit. Thanks, Peter. It's been a pleasure. My guest today has been Gibson Fay LeBlanc, Executive Director of the Maine Publishers and Writers Alliance. Gibson is also a poet, fiction writer, and teacher. His first collection of poems, Death of a Ventriloquist, received the Vassar Miller Prize and was published in 2012. His second book of poems, Deek Dangle Dive, was published by Caravan Carry Press in 2021. I'm your host, Peter Neal. Thanks for listening. Sarah Orne Jewett published her American classic, The Country of the Pointed Furs, in 1896, and it has remained a quiet evocation of the best of Maine. In a special edition published by Simon & Schuster, it is described as follows. 
It tells the story spanning three months' time in the life of a small coastal town called Dunnet Landing in 19th century Maine. A lone female visitor arrives and finds logic with the widowed Mrs. Todd, the town herbalist, who introduces the visitor to many of the town's inhabitants. The visitor's impressions of the people she meets start out simply, and then almost invisibly they crescendo into a deep, intense human portrait. When I read this book, I am moved by the wisdom hidden in the simplicity of the story. The portraits of the people, the likes of whom are today my friends and neighbors, known and unknown. For Jewett, the place described is a best scape for living, in nature, at work, for community. It is a place to see, hear, smell, taste, feel, love, and celebrate the best of what we call home. At the end, Jewett writes, near the woods, we could walk along to the highest point. There above the circle of pointed firs, we could look down over all the island and could see the ocean that circled this and a hundred other bits of island ground, the mainland shore and all the horizons. It gave a sudden sense of space, for nothing stopped the eye or hedged one in. That sense of liberty and space and time which great prospects always give. What a perfect definition of the spirit of Maine. Please support our authors and artists, visit our galleries and independent bookstores, and give thanks for the natural beauty, security, and peace all around us. Thanks for listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. I'm Peter Neal. You've been tuned in to Conversations from the Pointed Furs. Elite's Island Books Audio Project, produced by Trisha Badger, theme by Casey Neal for Mock Turtle Music, hosted by Peter Neal. Visit pointedfurs.org for more information and find us on your favorite podcast app.